In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. I am flying solo tonight. Nathan was not able to join us, but because it is midterms week, we just had to put out an episode of some kind. So we thought we would go through, eerily reminiscent of last year, not the only uh, deja vu that we'll experience tonight, um, but we'll go through, talk about where we are currently. Um, we There is no final answer yet on the state of the Senate or the house, but we'll do our best to predict where things will end up, do a little bit of interpretation, and then in the coming weeks, we'll be doing more thoughtful analysis on, you know, where to go from here, what the implications are, um, the drivers of the various, uh, you know, outcomes of this particular election, and trying to understand uh, what the implications might be for future elections. But we'll jump right into it, talking about kind of where we are and where we think we're going to be once all of the dust settles. So in the Senate, uh, one of the uh, more contentious uh, elections of this cycle, um, the Democrats held 36 seats that were not up for re-election as we head into the midterms. So far, they've secured 12 seats, bringing their total uh, in 2023 to 48 confirmed seats in the Senate. Uh, Republicans... Uh, held 29 seats that weren't up for re-election and have 20 seats called in their favor at this point. So bringing their total for 2023 up to a confirmed 49 seats. If you do your math, you'll realize that there are three seats then that are currently not called, which will decide control of the Senate. So whichever party picks up two of these three seats will control the Senate. Um, Now, note, this does eliminate kind of a long-shot Democrat scenario that we were hoping for on the Perspectrum, which is picking up enough seats to make Mansion and Cinema largely irrelevant. But at this point, even if we picked up all three seats, we'd have 51 seats, meaning they'd still be in competition, essentially, to be the most conservative uh, member of the Senate and control a lot of Democratic votes. Okay, so what are these three seats which will decide control of the Senate in 2023. First off, we have Arizona. Mark Kelly led in polling for much of the race, but in recent weeks, Republican Blake Masters started catching up. Um, At this point, just 70% or so of the vote has been counted. Now, this is Thursday evening. 70% of the vote has been counted, and Kelly leads by about 5.2 points. He's at 51.5% of the vote compared to Masters 46.3. Now, I would say I do feel pretty good about Kelly's chances of retaining that lead, even as the remaining 30% or so of the vote come in. Um, So according to New York Times estimates, the counties with the most votes left to be cast tend to be heavily favored towards Kelly, right? So for example, Pima County, which is the second largest county in the state. So they've already, they've counted 66% of the vote. And of that 66% of the vote that has been counted, Kelly leads by 25 points. So 
if the remaining percent of the vote looks anything like the first 66% of the vote in that county, Kelly's taking the county. Se- again, second largest county in the state. So basically, the counties where Masters leads are, um, for the most part, their votes are largely counted, or in cases where there is still a large majority, like a still large portion of votes left to be counted, and he's in the lead, uh, the counties are very small. So really, like, there is a significant kind of lean in Kelly's direction um, at this point. So, like, I think Arizona will go to Kelly. Nevada. Uh, Nevada's the second uh, available seat here that we wanted to talk about. So in Nevada, Republican Adam Laxalt uh, is currently ahead by about 1.8 points. So 494 uh, compared to the Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto's 47.6, right? Which is a pretty big lead. 1.8 points is a pretty big lead with 88% of the vote already counted. Now, it is worth looking at the details of where that remaining uh, 12% of the vote will come from. In 15 of Nevada's 17 counties, Laxalt leads by pretty fucking crazy margins like in seven seven of the 15 counties where laxalt leads uh he leads by more than 50 percent except the thing is all of those counties combined have an estimated total vote count of 140,000 votes with 130,000 votes already counted right that 140,000 votes is the vast minority of votes in the state. For example, um, the largest county in the state, right? There's only two other counties that aren't already, that don't already have um, Laxalt as like the, the far and away the leader in those counties. So only two other counties. And those two counties, one has 195,000 estimated total votes, and the other has 691,000 estimated total votes. So the math here really matters because in total, his 15 counties add, like create less total votes than the, just the second largest county in the state. So the population is really heavily concentrated there, which matters for the Senate. So Cortez Masto leads in Clark County, which contains Las Vegas and is the largest county in the state. And there she leads by 5%. Now, in terms of the estimated vote, that county, as I mentioned, is about five times bigger than all of the other, all of the counties that Laxalt has the lead in put together, right? So Clark County has 88% of the vote already counted. So if her lead held, if that 5% held for the remaining 12% of the vote, then she'd get about 40,000 more votes once they're all counted, and Laxalt would get about 33,000 more votes. Um, So that nets her about 7,000 votes of the 16,000 vote lead that Masto currently has total in the state. This brings us to the second largest county in the state, uh, Washoe County. Washoe County has estimated 195,000 total votes, and currently only an estimated 77% of the vote is counted. So we've got 23% of the vote left to go, um, and currently Masto, Cortez Masto leads, but only by about a quarter of a point. So if this were to hold, 
right? If she just, if, if her quarter of a point were to hold for the remaining 23% of the vote, she would lose the seat. So unfortunately, Cortez Masto has just two potential paths to victory uh, in Nevada, or, or she could have some combination of the two. So she could double her lead in Clark County for the remaining 12% of the vote. So if, as they continued counting, her lead expanded to be an 11% lead in Clark County, she would win the seat. Alternatively, her lead in Washoe County, as they remain and counted the next 23% of the vote, her, her lead in that county could expand to 13%. Now, both of these are pretty unlikely outcomes. It's pr- unless there's like some kind of significant underlying bias, it would be very, very unlikely that uh, her lead would go up by that much over such a small you know, minority of those votes. They'd basically have to almost entirely go to her. So that makes it a pretty sure thing that Nevada will go to the Republican, which putting one more seat in Republicans' favor. So ultimately, in a, in a race very reminiscent of 2020, Georgia, in a runoff election, will decide control of the Senate. So this is the Warnock-Walker race. At this point, 99% of the votes have been counted. In other words, they've all been counted. Um, and neither candidate has over 50% of the vote. Now, in Georgia, that means that the election goes to a runoff. And the reason that's the case is because there's a third candidate, he'll get axed, and we'll have a runoff between the two leaders. So this will occur on December 6th. And yeah, this is deja vu all over again. Now, Warnock, the Democrat, currently leads by 0.9%. But that third party candidate had about about 2.1% of the vote. So that's like, if everybody just showed up and voted just how they did, except that 2.1%, that's what we're having to deal with there. But at the same time, Given the fact that we'll probably see Arizona called in favor of a Democrat, we'll probably see Nevada called in favor of a Republican, we are looking down the barrel of a runoff election which decides control of the Senate, which means effort, like, like turnout is going to really matter uh, and money is going to really matter. So people will be flooding Georgia with attention just like they did in 2020. Now, it's not a presidential election, so there might be a little bit less emphasis, but we should expect a lot of focus there. And it's a place where wherever we can, we should put our energy as well. It's a very, very consequential election. And it will be the election which decides control of the Senate. Now, moving on to the House. According to CNN, currently in the House, Republicans have won 209 seats, having flipped 16 seats. This puts them just nine seats away from House control. Whereas Democrats have a total of 192 seats that have been called for them, and they have flipped four seats from Republicans. Um, So there are still 34 seats left to be determined. So of those, Democrats are currently ahead by any margin, right? Even just just 0.1% ahead in just 21 states. So if we just stopped counting now and called the elections... Democrats would lose control of the House. Does that seem likely? Yes. <laughs> but uh, um, 
But it's worth looking at some of the detail there because Democrats actually are looking like more favorable on a number of these states. We just are trailing on the ones we've already captured. Uh, So we just don't have as many confirmed calls towards Democrats because we only have 192 called towards Democrats. Republicans have 209 called toward them. So Democrats would have to win three quarters of the outstanding seats in order for the Republicans not to take control. So even though we seem to be doing pretty well in the outstanding states, there's almost no way we're going to make it to that three-quarter mark. So in three of the 34 states, Republicans are leading by 10% or more in the polls. These are very safe to call for Republicans. But seven seats have Democrats leading by 10% or more in the counted votes. Now, looking at that range of, of a lead of f- between 5 and 10%, Republicans have two seats in that, in that range, and Democrats have four seats in that range, right? So we've got more sure things than Republicans do. But the idea that we will be able to defend and capture enough seats to get to 75% of the remaining seats seems pretty far-fetched, right? That means that if all of those seats, right, all the people with 5% or more of a lead uh, are sure things, that means that the remaining 18 seats, Democrats could only lose three of those and retain the House. So with, like, there are three House races that are already out there with 94% of the vote counted going towards Republicans, right? So once we, like, account for all of the seats that are sure, kind of basically sure things in either direction, then the Democrats can only lose three seats, and, uh, like, those are already pretty much going towards Republicans. So my prediction is pretty freaking solid that Republicans will control the House. Um, three other important parts of tonight. Governors, state houses, and ballot measures. In terms of of gubernatorial races, Democrats won 16 uh, governor's mansions with an additional two that are leaning Democrat, right? That haven't been called yet. Republicans also won 16 governor's races in addition to two that are leaning Republican. Um, In total, 24 governor's mansions will be occupied by a Democrat and 26 will be occupied by a Republican. And that as weird as it sounds, is a relative success. We've flipped two governor's seats towards Democrats. That's Maryland um, and Massachusetts. In terms of state houses, however, 13 uh, state governments in total, right? State houses and, and, and governor's mansions, 13 will be controlled by Democrats. 19 state governments will be controlled by Republicans. And 17 are either split or too early to call. So as we all are very all too aware these days, who sits in the governor's mansion and who runs the state houses is really important. But one of the things that can help mitigate the influence of that is ballot measures um, and, and specifically like amendments to state constitutions. So there is some good news on that front. As we've talked about before, many popular Democratic proposals are pretty popular with Republicans. And so when you just ask people, do you think if this is a good idea, it tends to come out in the right direction a lot of times. So uh, three states legalized marijuana for recreational use. That's Arkansas, Maryland, and Missouri. On the abortion front, 
California, Michigan, and Vermont all enshrined abortion uh, as a constitutional right in their state constitutions. And Kentucky, of all places, voted against a measure which would clarify that nothing in their state constitution could be construed to protect the right of an abortion. Good news on California, Michigan, and Vermont, although not surprising. Um, And on, on the Kentucky front, surprisingly good news, although not as good as, you know, one would wish. In terms of voter protection, uh, Connecticut voted uh, to allow early voting, which amended their state constitution, and Nevada uh, implemented ranked choice voting and open primaries. Very cool to see ranked choice voting in Nevada. In terms of uh, minimum wage, Nebraska and Nevada both uh, increased their minimum wage, Nebraska to $15, Nevada to $12. And then Oregon, on the healthcare front, enshrined the right to healthcare in their state constitution. This was a freaking exciting midterms. There will be a lot of implications coming out of this. Uh, mostly, I think, because of like the narrative going into it and a lot of the expectations going into it. So um, tons of most of the media coverage has been focused on the Democrats' relative overperformance, relative to polls leading into the midterms, relative to uh, previous Uh, midterm elections when the party in power had a particularly unpopular president, which Joe Biden is. So much of the coverage has focused on how well Democrats did. On this show, though, we don't care all that much about D's and R's as we do about policy. And in this regard, we all lost. If our predictions come out right, we all lost, right? We kept control of the Senate, which will help a little. We lost control of the House, and therefore we lost the ability to implement pretty much anything. The House will make a mockery of itself, will attempt to make a mockery of uh, this you know, administration, and it will cut off paths to policy progress altogether. Lots of media coverage is also focusing on this as like a referendum on Trump or Trumpism, and they're talking a lot about uh, Ron DeSantis and his 2024 run and all of the success that Republicans had in the, in the South and specifically in Florida. One thing to call out here, and I'm sure we'll get into it more later, is I think that narrative misses a really key thing. It's even if you take it at face value that this was a rejection of Trump because many of Trump's endorsed candidates lost, um, even if you take it as a rejection of, uh, you know, pushes to undermine our electoral system because a lot of Stop the Steal candidates lost, it is clearly not a rejection of extreme conservatism. Many extreme conservatives won all over the place. And so, like, you know, We've talked about before how Donald Trump was an incredibly harmful president, but a crafty, thoughtful, intelligent, true believer could be much worse. And so someone like Ron DeSantis would be really bad. And it looks like even if we were to say this this stacks up to Trump not getting elected in 2024, it in no way amounts to a success for, like, Democrats, it in no way amounts to a success for um, people who value progressivism and, and policy priorities and stuff like that. Fundamentally, the conservatism that Ron DeSantis embodies, if he or many of these other people were to become 
president or to control our Congress um, would be extremely harmful. So what's next? We have to focus on the Georgia runoff. Uh, in terms of what this means for 2024, good question. It's still too early to know. But we'll be back very soon to talk more about the midterm elections, the implications, what we predict for the future, um, and what we need to do next. So thank you so much for listening to the special midterm uh, solo show on the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>